In my episode about the Mortal Kombat film, I touched upon how in the 80s and early 90s there were lots of R-rated films that were consciously marketed to children. For example, Rambo, Robocop, and The Toxic Avenger all got Saturday morning cartoons. In fact, the PG-13 rating was created as a direct result of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was, once again, very explicitly marketed to children with action figures and board games and such, but also scenes where, you know, somebody got their heart torn out. After parents' groups complained, Steven Spielberg suggested that they should create a film rating between PG and R in order to, you know, let the kids know there's going to be cool stuff, but not, like, boobs. <laughs> One of the last major examples of Happy Meal toys being sold in connection to a not-exactly-small-child-appropriate film may be Batman Returns, who, at this point in time, was still largely considered a kiddie character. Tim Burton was given a massive budget and total creative freedom after the preceding Batman film just completely cleaned up. It was an almost unprecedented success. This makes Batman Returns one of the most idiosyncratic studio blockbusters ever made. This could only be made by Tim Burton in 1992. It is an incredibly weird movie. So for this, the last of our Christmas episodes, because this is sort of a Christmas movie, it's one of the ones where it's really an action or horror movie that happens to have Christmas decorations in the background, but, you know, whatever, we're squeaking it in, we're talking about Batman Returns for this. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Joining me for this episode is my baby sister, Sarah, welcome back. Hi guys. You have not seen Batman Returns in decades since you were very small and you had no memory of it. That's not entirely true. I had some vague memories of the very beginning of the movie. I remembered, like, right up until Michelle Pfeiffer becomes Catwoman. And then it was all gone. All of it. I mean, there were a few scenes here and there. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this part. But most of it, no. Just gone from my... You you remember Penguin biting that dude's nose. I did. I did. I very specifically remembered that. I think it probably traumatized me as a child because... This movie came out when I was three. Yeah, 1992. So you were three years old. I was seven. Yeah. So when when we watched this as children, because this was the one we watched the most of the Tim Burton movies, I think, I was like maybe seven at the oldest the last time we watched this movie. I have very vague memories. Before I do the plot recap, uh, I just wanted to point out that most of my interactions with you while we were watching this was you taking umbrage at something happening on the screen, and you're just like, why is this happening, as a rhetorical question, and I just kept saying, don't think about that too much. (laughs) You're you're putting more into this than you should be. I'm putting more into it than Tim Burton did. Alright, plot recap. Alright, in the prologue... you can call it a plot. It's actually five small plots wearing a trench coat. <laughs> pretending to be one plot. In the prologue, Gotham aristocrats Tucker and Escher and Cobblepot are disgusted by the deformed feral boy that they've just given birth to after he eats the family cat, which is a scene you've retained. I, I very much remember being really horrified by that scene as a child, but we've always had pet cats too, so that might have been part of it. You know, the Cobblepots throw the baby off a bridge where he drifts through Gotham's sewer system as the opening theme and the credits roll out and is discovered by a bunch of penguins and is adopted by circus performers. 
33 years. just keep penguins around. That's often in a circus, not the circus animal. 33 years later, we meet millionaire philanthropist uh, Max Shrek. He's planning to build a power plant in Gotham, but is opposed by the mayor and later on Bruce Wayne. At a speech at Gotham's Christmas tree lighting ceremony, and that's a Christmas movie, Shrek is attacked by the Red Triangle Gang, a disgraced circus troupe. Batman intervenes, mostly by murdering the shit out of a whole bunch of people. This is a very homicidal Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one bit where, like, there's, there's a fire breather in a devil costume, and then Batman just, like, reverses the Batmobile and uses the turbines to immolate him, and it's played like a Looney Tunes gag. Yeah. So we're just going to get a lot of that. And during that, Batman rescues Selina Kyle, the mousy and very frumpy and unattractive person. And, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer, guys. Yeah, if you put her in clothes that don't fit super well and giant glasses, you forget that she's gorgeous. Bullshit. Anyway, Bullshit. Anyways, after Batman takes out the, the clown that was threatening her, she recovers a taser that is sort of shaped like a cat. Subtext foreshadowing. This movie's deep. The taser was supposed to be shaped like a cat? Yeah, a little cat head. I did not notice. How many tasers have you seen have cat ears on them? To be fair, I haven't seen that many tasers, I guess. In the brouhaha, Shrek is abducted <laughs> by the gang and taken to their leader, an adult version of the deformed baby in the prologue who is now called the Penguin. This man wishes to leave his identity as an urban legend, rejoin Gotham society, and discover the identity of his parents, uh, or so he claims. Shrek is reluctant to help Penguin, but agrees when blackmailed with evidence of his various corporate crimes, mostly pollution and offing his business partners. So... Just for those keeping track, we're on our third subplot. Yeah, meanwhile, our mousy and frumpy secretary, Selena Kyle, accidentally stumbles across the fact that Shrek's proposed power plant is actually intended to drain Gotham's energy and bring the city under his control. When Shrek discovers Selena with the data, he pushes her out a window to her seeming death. That honestly, I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't be interrupting you very much during the beginning, but it feels like an underpants gnome scheme. Like, build power plant, drain power, rule the world! How does how does that help? Don't think about it too much. <laughs> A group of alley cats, however, miraculously revives Selena. She then returns home, angrily destroys the iconography of her prior life, and rechristens herself as the vindictive Catwoman, and takes a leather jacket and turns it into a full-body cat suit, nope. which, this is the thing that you are the most opposed to. Listen, there wasn't enough fabric. Because the cat suit, it covers her boots. Like, it's a full body. Like, it, that was, it wasn't even a trench coat. The it fact that, go down the fact that this was twisting you up so much is like, oh, God, we, we, we're we not even through Act 1. You, you're you're going to have such a hard time. It didn't even go down to her, like, mid-calf. Like, it was, the coat was, it was, Anyway. Penguin makes his presence known by rescuing the mayor's baby from a staged kidnapping attempt. This earns the goodwill of Gotham and makes Penguin into a local celebrity. He exploits this to gain access to Gotham's Hall of Records under the pretense of researching his true name and lineage. He soon announces that his name is Oswald Cobblepot and that both his parents are deceased. This is taken as a feel-good story in Gotham's media, but Batman is skeptical, noting that a traveling circus had an ugly history with a homicidal bird boy sideshow performer who seems to match Oswald's description. At a meeting to voice opposition to Shrek's power plant and also question his connection to Penguin, Bruce meets Selina and is instantly attracted to her. Shrek is startled by Selina's sudden reappearance, but decides not to take any action unless she tries to extort him later. 
Looking to get rid of Gotham's mayor and therefore build this power plant, Shrek offers to bankroll a mayoral candidacy for Penguin. He had already threatened the mayor earlier into the film, saying that he's collected signatures from his uh, employees in order to force a recall. Penguin is reluctant to agree since he has other plans already, but he is won over by the temptation of sex, money, and power, or as Shrek puts it, Unlimited Poontang, which is one of the various one-liners in this film that just stopped you cold. The dialogue in this film did a number on you. The dialogue in this movie is terrible. It's very good actors doing the best they can with a whole lot of purple prose that is mocking you for even thinking about taking this movie seriously. I can't even remember like half that- of the lines that made me pause, but like they were all so bad. Someone once said, when you are drunk and making fun of Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin is drunk and making fun of you. I think that applies equally to all four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hoping to trigger a recall, Penguin orders the Red Triangle gang to trash Gotham, thereby damaging the mayor's standing. Batman fights the gang as Catwoman destroys a department store owned by Shrek. Batman runs into Catwoman, and despite their mutual attraction, he tries to apprehend her. She gets away, but not without injury. Later on, she proposes an alliance with a very horny penguin. This whole movie is horny. There's not a single part of this movie that isn't horny. Also, it should be noted that in that fight with Batman, neither of them know that the other one is the alter ego. Like, Batman has no idea that she's Selina Kyle, and Selina has no idea that he's Bruce. So, they're mutually attracted, like, in masks and out of masks, and they haven't figured it out. And, like, they're not covering much of their face. It's not like in, like, the comics where, like, Batman's whole, like, upper face is obscured. I couldn't have bought that when I was a child. Like, that wasn't a thing that made sense to me. I was like, you can still see the rest of his face. You know what, though? I have new coworkers that I've met this year, and seeing them on Zoom meetings for the first time without a mask on and being able to see the rest of their face, I had no idea who they were. Totally new people. We're not nearly as clever as we think we are. Clark Kent could fool us. No, no. That's glasses. That's not covering a part of his face. Oh, you've seen that meme with Zoe Deschanel with her glasses off and her hair pulled back. Yeah, it takes them an absurdly long time to figure out. Because they're spending an awful lot of time together in this movie. Although this movie is is very much lacking in Batman. Oh, yes. uh, We'll be talking about that later. You seem surprised by the fact that Batman is a minor supporting character in his own franchise. Uh Uh-huh. As Bruce and Selina begin a romantic relationship, Penguin and Catwoman abduct Gotham's Ice Princess with a battering repossessed from a previous uh, battle, because Catwoman suggested that they frame Batman in their attempt there. And this is just before the city's new Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Batman rushes in to save her, but Penguin kills her in a way that makes Batman appear responsible. While Batman evades the police, Penguin had his henchmen hotwire the Batmobile and add a remote control device to the bottom. As such, when Batman returns, eh, uh, Penguin, <laughs> Penguin traps him in the car as it rampages throughout Gotham. However, Batman locates and neutralizes the control device before anyone is killed. While this is going on, Penguin is taunting Batman over his little CTV device in the Batmobile. <laughs> And Batman decides to pop a CD and record the Penguin making threats to him in the city. This is important later. Batman evades the police by blowing up parts of the Batmobile, just turning it into, like, a flying cigar. I know you were astonished by the Batmobile's appearance, because, like, this is just a big penis. He's driving a big penis around. And that that hurt a little, because this is one of my favorite Batmobiles. Okay, my favorite Batmobile is from the animated series. But, I mean, I I guess they all kind of look like big penises. 
Uh, the Adam West one, not so much. Yeah, the Adam West one is just like a old-school caddy type deal. Meanwhile, after she snubs his sexual advances yet again, Penguin severs his partnership with Catwoman via umbrella-related murder attempt. She survives by falling into a greenhouse and then screaming so high that she breaks the glass. This film has a very heightened reality, in case I haven't made this clear to you yet. That's not even that loud, like, high-pitched of a scream. Now, later, Penguin is making a stump speech when Batman jams the PA frequency and plays the crude comments that Penguin made earlier. The public reacts nastily to this revelation and immediately turn on Penguin, which, in this day and age, feels rather quaint. Yeah. His political ambitions ruined because of his vulgar language. <laughs> Batman uses the CD like a... Like a vinyl record. Like He's a like, vinyl record. He just like the wicka wicka wicka. <laughs> <laughs> And it's also still not the least plausible part of the scene in this day and age. <laughs> Penguin is immediately abandoned by Shrek, who's just like, what, what, what are you going to do? And is chased back to the sewer by an angry mob. Embittered by his failures, Penguin reverts to his original plan, which is to kidnap and murder every firstborn son in Gotham. At a charity ball organized by Shrek, which is a masquerade, Bruce and Selina dance with each other. They're the only two people at the masquerade who aren't wearing masks. Eh? Eh? Get it? (laughs) Do you get it? Tim Burton doesn't think you get it. Wicka, wicka, wicka. Yeah, after some more horny dialogue, uh, they kiss under the mistletoe. But, you see, Batman and Catwoman had some horny dialogue under the mistletoe earlier in the movie. So when they repeat that, they figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, and Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer are doing the best they can to sell that, but you're just it is very stupid, even within the very elastic reality of Batman Returns. It just there's not there's nothing you can do to salvage that. The dialogue is such a clam. Uh, a kiss under the mistletoe is nice, but uh, uh, no, no, uh, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat if it. You eat it, but a kiss this can be even deadlier if you mean it. Even deadlier if you mean it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, before they can act on this. Penguin breaks into the party with the intent of kidnapping Shrek's son. With a massive rubber duck. He's in a massive duck boat. Shrek- I don't know where he got it. Rye asked. Ryan said, don't ask too many questions. Yeah, don't think about that too much. Just roll with it. Shrek, however, is able to convince Penguin to take him instead of his son. This is the one instance of humanity that Max Shrek has. He actually cares about his son. He's building the power plant because he wants a legacy to leave to his son. And even though Max Shrek, like most evil businessmen in this period in Hollywood history, is a thinly veiled Trump, he does seem to care about children he doesn't want to have sex with, so he's got that on the real version. Yeah. Well, and they, they have some, like, throwaway comment earlier in the movie where he says something about his, to his son, he says, you know, your late mother, and see, like, there's supposed to be some kind of trauma or sadness there, but you don't really feel that. Also, his son is just doing a really terrible Christopher Walken impression the entire time. <laughs> I am delighted by that terrible Christopher Walken it impression. It is lovely. Like, when he was like, Dad, save yourself. <laughs> and you're just like, what? <laughs> Batman quickly foils the mass kidnapping attempt. They're going through the city in a giant toy train with cages with screaming children in the back. This movie is nothing, if not subtle. With that out of the way, Penguin resorts to having his army of penguins bomb Gotham to ruins with rocket launches strapped to their backs, which caused you to (laughs) giggle for ten uninterrupted minutes. Because he addresses the penguin army like he's General Patton, and, and they're just waddling around. 
with candy cane striped rockets. <laughs> they have these little like tinfoil hats <laughs> and then at one point while they're shooting off their rockets they have little like eye pieces shoot down so they can shoot the rockets better even though they don't have control of the rockets. I love it. I love everything about it. It's my favorite. The, the Penguins mass on Gotham Square, Batman and Alfred, who are somehow aware of this plan, uh, are able to jam the signal and send the Penguins back home. Batman then follows the Penguins back in, in tracing the signal to uh, Penguins' lair. Also, Catwoman is able to find the lair. Don't ask why. Batman confronts Penguin, and they scuffle for a little bit, but it, it's a pretty uneven fight. Batman has taken control of the Penguins, but... Penguin snatches away the little launch button that Batman has and decides to have the penguins blow up his own lair. For reasons. Yeah, Penguin then plummets into the toxic sludge that he was planning to drown the children in. Oh, is that why his bloody, like, black mouth turns green in the end? Sure. Okay. Yeah, Shrek escapes in the confusion, but is confronted by a vengeful Catwoman. Batman tries to talk to Catwoman out of murder, which is rich, considering what he's been doing throughout the entire movie, and pulls his mask off in front of Shrek, which bothered bothered you almost as much as him tearing it off. So, okay, so... First off, he tears it off. He yeah. rips his suit, which Alfred must be so mad. The number of times he must have to fix those suits, buy him new suits. Like, they, they must buy a stock in whatever it is those suits are made out of at this point. Because, what the fuck, dude? But also, she already knows who you are. I, like, think, I think he was pulling his mask off in order to, like, dramatically underscore his point that they could live together away from the masks. You know, like the dialogue at the party. Yeah, but, like, is now the time? Well, it's never the time. Gotham is the most extra city on Earth. Shrek had managed to grab a gun off one of the Penguin's dead henchmen and shoots both Batman and Catwoman. Catwoman won't go down because she kind of has, like, this nine lives thing going on. And, and, you know, Shrek keeps capping her and she keeps coming at him and he runs out of bullets before she's dead. It's the magic of the cat's fit. It's the magic of the cat's bit. The Catwoman grabs some dangling power lines and takes out the taser from earlier, uh, electrocuting both herself and Shrek. With a kiss. With a kiss. Yeah. Batman discovers Shrek's corpse, but Catwoman has vanished. Penguin then emerges, but is barely able to stagger to his arsenal before grabbing the wrong trick umbrella and dropping dead. His penguins then give him a burial at sea, or sewer. The final scene is Alfred driving Bruce home when he sees Catwoman's silhouette in an alley. Bruce leaps out to search for her, but uh, only finds a stray kitten that he then takes back to the car. And it heartened you that he did that. Yeah, it's sweet. The final shot is the bat signal appearing above the city and Catwoman, who is alive after all, looking up at it. End of film. They didn't wrap up any of the plot points. Yeah, you don't know what's going on with the power plant. Is Chip going to try to build a power plant? This is not addressed in Batman forever. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why. And you're like, this is a really long movie. And like, no, it's actually not. It's it's less than two hours. They're just cramming a whole lot of story into this. So much. This movie spins a lot of plates and and drops them. It's not holding any plates at the end. No. Okay, development of this film, which is very labored. Initially, Two-Face was going to be one of three villains. Billy D. Williams, whom you know best as Lando Calrissian in Star Wars, played Harvey Dent in the preceding Batman film, under the assumption that he'd be Two-Face in the sequel. 
However, as the story started developing away and Two-Face started uh, morphing into Max Shrek, Billy D. Williams dropped out, although Warner Brothers was obligated to pay his uh, Two-Face salary anyway. So, hey, nice check for Billy D. Williams, nice. if nothing else. D- Tommy Lee Jones plays Two-Face, doesn't he? Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones plays Two-Face in Batman in Forever. Movie, yeah, in the next and one. And that's with, that's with uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah, Jim Carrey's the Riddler in that one. Billy D. Williams did voice Two-Face in the Lego Batman movie, so he finally got to be Two-Face. Aw, that's sweet. In very early versions of the script, Robin was the character. He was uh, apparently going to be played by Marlon Wayans. That sounds terrible. Yeah, uh, Robin was quickly written out of the script. Where would they have fit him? Well, he was going to be like this uh, precocious orphan boy who kept helping Batman out and eventually would become Robin. They would have had to make the movie, like, another half hour longer. Or edit out one of the other subplots. Another stumbling block is that neither Tim Burton nor Michael Keaton were uh, contractually obligated to appear in sequels, so they had to lure both of them back. Burton, who was unhappy with Batman's screenplay, only agreed after the screenplay for Batman Returns met his approval. Keaton was lured back with $11 million. I bet. He didn't even... He's barely in the movie. The, uh, the studio was unhappy with that sum, but Burton felt that Keaton was worth it. I can't argue that he's not, but, like, he didn't really do much, so I feel like anybody could have done what he did. More on that later. The first draft of the screenplay had Penguin and Catwoman chasing after uh, hidden treasure. Burton felt that this wasn't enough and that it, it, the plot needed to be denser. <laughs> oh boy, did he get what he asked for. Oh boy. Burton brought in Daniel Waters based on the script that he wrote for Heathers. The power plant angle was added by him. Uh, Wesley Strick was brought in uncredited, and he came up with the Moses angle for the Penguin after Burton complained that uh, the Penguin didn't have enough of a motivation, so the whole killing every firstborn child in Gotham came from that guy. At the same time, Burton fondly remembered an episode of the 1960s Batman TV show where Penguin ran for mayor as subterfuge for a heist and decided that that should be in the movie too. I remember that episode because I liked that episode. I like that episode better than I like that angle in the movie. It fits very succinctly into a 30-minute Batman episode and also Burgess Meredith. Well, the Batman episodes are an hour long, but still. Are they really? Yeah, they're two episodes. They're always two-parters, except for the... Oh, well, yeah, they're always two-parters. Yeah, except in the third season. Yeah. All right, uh, the filming of the movie. Batman Returns is one of the last major Hollywood films to have a traditional filming process from, like, you know, Golden Age Hollywood. There are indoor sound stages, miniatures, matte painting, so on and so forth. There's almost no CGI in the film. Uh, exceptions being the remote-controlled battering bit and the part where the bats explode out of the Christmas tree because you can't train thousands of bats to do that. The scene where the Batmobile... Oh, yes. All of the, that, there, was, there was some CGI there, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, there was some CGI yeah. on the Batmobile security devices. But other than that, everything was, everything was hand-built. Which it, you can tell because it's very beautiful. It's a, it's a stunning movie. Warner Brothers spent $250,000 storing sets from the first Batman movie for this one. So all of the Art Deco architecture from the preceding film is here, and it's a sight to behold. Every time that you were freaking out, it was like, well, look at how pretty it is. (laughs) It's a gorgeous movie. It's just trash. (laughs) The staging for Batman Returns took up 50% of the Warner Brothers studio lot when it was fully built. 
and everything was constantly moving around. Michelle Pfeiffer complained that she got lost trying to find places. That does not surprise me. Now, Tim Burton wanted king penguins to be the penguins for this film, but there weren't any tame ones in captivity anywhere except England. They had to be flown in while refrigerated, and they had a bodyguard on them at all times. You see, animal rights groups found out that the Batman movie was going to have live penguins with rocket launchers strapped to their backs and started complaining. Good! Good! So a bunch of Humane Society people were on set making sure that nobody was hurting the penguins. Okay, but I'm going to argue that point here for a minute because, so, you said that he wanted king penguins. He got a lot of African penguins, but all of the emperor penguins that were there were either people in suits or robots. There were a couple of genuine king penguins, but whenever a king penguin had to do something, <laughs> like, say, give the penguin a burial at sea, <laughs> you can't train a penguin to do that. So you put, you, you put a little person in the suit and have him just sort of walk alongside the penguin as he drags himself to his funeral, because those are flippers. There's no way they did that. They, I just gotta let it go. Dan Winston, who built most of the mechanical penguins, had a hard time because... The live penguins kept cuddling with them. Oh my god, that's the sweetest thing I've ever heard in my life. The set was continually kept at 35 degrees Fahrenheit so the penguins would be comfortable. And Michelle Pfeiffer was very uncomfortable. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, the penguins, however, were very happy. They were apparently just constantly having sex. <laughs> they laid many eggs. So, according to ornithologists who study penguins, this means that the penguins were in a good mood. Yeah. The filming of Batman Returns was shrouded in secrecy. <laughs> the art department was required to keep their blinds down at all times. Nobody could enter or leave the set without a photo ID. Movie stars, most notably Kevin Costner, wanted to visit the set to see what the Batman movie looked like and got turned away. Wow. Danny DeVito was uh, contractually forbidden from sharing details of his two-hour makeup procedure with anyone, including family members. However, a photograph of Penguin in full makeup was leaked to the media, and Warner Brothers hired private investigators to find out who got it out. Wow. Uh, for the production design, Anton first did the uh, architecture and set dressing and mizzen scene for the previous Batman movie, but he wasn't available, so Bo Welch was brought in to replace him. He studied fascist architecture, uh, World's Fair designs, Russian architecture, and German expressionism in particular when designing the buildings, vehicles, props, zoo sculptures, department store mascots, and so on and so forth that littered this film throughout. And one of Batman Returns and Lola Burton Batman films' positive attributes is just the aesthetic. I mentioned earlier that Roger Ebert's uh, review of the first Batman movie, he called it a triumph of style over substance, which is a backhanded compliment, but I can't think of a better description of these films. Nope. The architecture alone does have a German expressionistic streak, but this is littered throughout the film. If you know anything about German expressionism, you already know that Max Schreck is the name of the actor who played Count Orlock in Nosferatu. Uh, I didn't know that, but yeah. that makes sense. That's a deliberate nod. The Penguin's clothing, especially when he's a mayoral candidate, is modeled after Dr. Caligari in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
And while this isn't a German expressionist film, the Masquerade Ball is modeled after the Masquerade Ball in the 1925 uh, Phantom of the Opera film starring Lon Chaney Sr. There's even a Mask of Red Death performer on the staircase as Selena comes down in her gorgeous dress. Oh my god, that dress. That dress is fantastic. Speaking of Catwoman, 60 latex cat suits were built, each costing about $1,000 each. The initial concept came from Burton. He wanted there to be uh, very deliberate white seams all throughout the costume. It was modeled after a teddy bear he made. Yeah, that tracks. I mean, I guess the idea is that they want to give you the perception that it was made in her apartment and that the, you know, visibly white seams don't match with what a designer would have created, but bullshit. I think you're putting too much thought into it. I think Catwoman's costume looks like that because Burton thought it looked cool. And it looks cool. It does look cool. Pfeiffer was coated in talcum powder and sewn into the suit for 12 to 14 hours at a time. She had difficulty breathing, especially since temperatures were kept low for the penguins, as I mentioned before. She could only use the bathroom on lunch breaks and stagehands had to like sort of cut her loose. <sighs> They also had to grease her up real good in order to have the latex suit look as shiny as it does. Oh, Jesus. Uh, when asked in an interview if she kept one of the cat suits for her husband's benefit, she responded that after filming, she never wanted to see one of those again. No kidding! She did keep one of the whips. I love Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> she apparently takes it out in the backyard occasionally. However, I said that she is quite rusty. Aww. When uh, trained with her whip, she accidentally nailed her trainer in the face the first time. However, he was a good sport about it, and she said that she uh, improved very quickly. She has described Catwoman as the most physically demanding role she ever got dead. No kidding. Speaking of uncomfortable suits, the bat suit was given something of an update. This one has a zipper on it. The previous one didn't. And they gave it a more comics-accurate emblem on the chest. Uh, it was made slightly lighter and more flexible. However, it still weighed about 50 pounds. One of the major setbacks for live-action Batman movies is that they're ostensibly action movies, but your lead is wearing this giant black latex condom that he can barely move in. Yeah. It's hard to stage fight scenes when you can't bend your neck. I guess that makes sense as to why he's not really in the movie. Next thing I want to talk about is the music. This is the first film with the Dolby Digital surround sound. Danny Elfman was excited to return because he didn't feel that he had to prove himself. He was no longer the new film composer around the block. He had a couple of hits under his belt, not the least of which being the first Batman, which everyone loved the score for that film. Because it's great. Elfman had more say in the arrangements, although he did work with an assistant. Most of the arrangements in the previous Batman film were done by uh, Shirley Walker, who was busy with something else at the time. More on that later. The score is 95 minutes long, which is twice as long as your typical film score. And while it does reprise a whole lot of motifs in the previous Batman score, there are added elements to it, uh, the choir vocals in particular. I, those are lovely. Yeah, especially the beginning where the <laughs> penguin gets thrown into the sewer. Elfman, looking to experiment, uh, decided to write Catwoman's theme with uh, lots of screeching violins in order to mimic cat noises, which I think works very well, especially in that scene where Selena's returning after getting pushed out the window and just loses her shit. Yeah. Which is a fan favorite scene that Michelle Pfeiffer sells the hell out of, but the score is a big part of that too. 
It gets a very emotional scene, and the music sort of conveys the proper emotion. And, yeah, there's lots of little Elfman touches to it. Nobody uses chimes in film music quite the way Elfman does. Uh, the way he uses the harp, he makes the harp sound melancholic in a way. Mm. Also, the bits where there are little touches of xylophone, that's, mm. it's, it's a weird touch, but it uh, undercuts it. Uh, but uh, the, the scenes that are more sprightly is when we're in full Elfman mode. <laughs> oh, oh, that was the other line that really bothered me. What did, what did Penguin say? I'm, I'm, I played this city... Like a harp from like, hell. Like a harp from hell. And I was like, that's not a saying. That's not real. Elfman was going through a very stressful work period because at the very same time he was doing all the music for A Nightmare Before Christmas. He was working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and Burton was right on his dick the whole time. No kidding. Yeah, they got into lots of fights, and... Apparently, they severed their creative partnership for a while. Burton's next film, uh, Ed Wood, was scored by Howard Shore because Elfman didn't want to have anything to do with Tim Burton anymore. I don't blame him. Although he did come back from Mars Attacks and has done almost every single Tim Burton movie since, so they patched things up. One other aspect of this film's music is the song, because this is the 80s and 90s, and you can sell a film soundtrack and move millions of copies. The previous Batman movie had uh, the first evidence of Prince's creative uh, decline, although I do kind of like Bat Dance and Party Man. This one has one song by the far more Batman-appropriate Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> They were personally requested by Tim Burton because, of course, they were. Oh, yeah, uh, Burton felt that Susie Sue's high-pitched contralto screech uh, mimicked cat noise and thought that it would be a nice undercurrent to the dancing sequence, which also features orchestrations by Elfman, so it sort of glides right into the rest of the music score. All right, let's talk about the cast. First off, Michael Keaton is Batman. Keaton considers Batman Returns to be a superior film. He apparently had a lot of fun on set, enjoyed himself greatly. It's fairly common to say that he's a flat Bruce Wayne, especially in this film, although he's, he's very clearly enjoying himself when he's Batman. You thought he was weirdly charismatic as Batman. He's, he's much more charismatic as Batman than he is as Bruce Wayne, and it's interesting because in the like animated series and, and whatnot, like they try it, it to be the opposite, but like Batman is who he really is, right? So he's, he's just really getting invested in the role. He's really having a good time. That scene where uh, he puts the bomb on the guy's stomach. Oh, and yeah. Then... The circus strongman's stomach and then punches him and he falls into the little subway entrance and explodes yeah. and, and the gives little, a little smile. little smile he gives afterwards. Like, you can just tell he's just having a good time. Keaton said that's his favorite scene in the Batman franchise. Uh, he says in particular, uh, any scene where Batman gets to smile wickedly is a good scene. Yeah, and I mean, he doesn't do much in this movie. He's barely in it, so like... The Adam West show kind of set this tone, but it was exemplified in the previous Batman movie where Michael Keaton's there, but Jack Nicholson is just being twice as Jack nicholson as he usually is, is that... Batman is a passive, reactive force to this A-list Hollywood god that we've cast to play the villain who we're going to give all the good lines to. Good lines is a stretch. Okay, memorable lines. There you go. All right, and speaking of which, Michelle Pfeiffer is Catwoman, whom almost everyone, including Batman co-creator Scare Quotes Bob Kane, believed walked away with the movie. Michelle Pfeiffer is so fucking good in this. She is... So good, and so hot, and 
possibly one of the reasons that I turned out to be a little bit gay. It is pretty common to cite Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman performance as <laughs> a sexual awakening amongst a good number of millennials. That is, that is not unusual at all. The, the camera loves her in this, and there is no such thing as overacting when you're a Batman villain. She plays the hell out of it. Yeah, getting back to German expressionism, I mentioned in my episode about Metropolis that Tim Burton was deeply influenced by that film, and my co-host Rachel's like, no shit! Yeah. And, you know, the bit where uh, the robot is just losing it while she is being burned at the stake. Those are Catwoman faces. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, I consider Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman to be one of the best Batman villain performances, which I consider to be a tough list to be on. Yeah, it's challenging. She steals the movie. She was not the first choice. Okay, there's a laundry list of people who auditioned for Catwoman. Lorraine Bracco, Cher, Gina Davis, Bridget Fonda, Jodie Foster, Nicole Kidman, who is in Batman Forever as a love interest, Madonna, Jennifer Jason Lee, Demi Moore, Susan Sarandon, Brooke Shields, Meryl Streep. I, okay, you said Gina Davis, and I was like, ooh, she's great. That could have been great. And then you said Meryl Streep, and I went, ooh, she's great. But I don't know. Burton felt that she was too old. Oh, fuck you, Burton. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, Reba McIntyre. What? Yeah, Raquel Welch. I don't know who that is. 1960s sex icon. Okay. Uh, Melanie Griffith. Annette Benning was cast, but she got pregnant and couldn't do it. Yeah, there's there's no way that you can be pregnant in that cat suit. Sean Young campaigned for the role in a homemade costume. I've heard of this. She appeared on, um, like, Joan Rivers had a talk show at the time, but apparently tried to, like, walk on set. Wowza. That was part of a mental breakdown, which I should not be joking about, so that's the end of that. Uh, Next up, Danny DeVito as the Penguin. Oh, boy. Oh, he just... He he out-hams Christopher Walken. No mean feat. He doesn't out-ham Michelle Pfeiffer because you can't. No, she's just... Soaking up every minute she can get, but usually that's Christopher Walken, you know? And, I mean, he's got the eyebrows and the widow's peaks in this movie to do that, and he just sort of stands there and lets Danny DeVito do his thing. Danny DeVito read about being considered for the Penguin role a year before being officially offered it. How? Casting agent said, for the Penguin, we wanted someone who was short and unpleasant. It's a short list. (laughs) He had talked to Jack Nicholson about it because they were pals, and Nicholson encouraged him to take the part. And that's the main reason he did it. This is a a very different Penguin from any previous incarnation or any subsequent incarnation. He's a a rapey sewer mutant. Oh my god, there's there's so much... He he walks up the stairs at one point, and he's talking about, like, the reasons to get into political, like, for political power, and he's like, you get to, you know, like, reach out and touch people. And grope people. And you're like, ugh. And he sees Catwoman, he's like, just the pussy I'm looking for. And you're just like, oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) When they created the Italian action figures to promote this film, they ignored rapey sewer mutant penguin (laughs) and just created a penguin action figure modeled after a Jack Burnley drawing. Yeah. I imagine yeah. they did. Because rapey a... sewer penguin is not something that you can market to children. So yeah, you see a, a Batman figure that looks like Michael Keaton, a Catwoman figure that looks like Michelle Pfeiffer, and then a penguin that looks like a 1940s cartoon character. Good. 
Good. Danny DeVito turned down a body double for the scene where he's pelted by vegetables during the speech. He's like, I can take a tomato to the face. That's fine. Because <laughs> Danny DeVito's a trooper. Danny DeVito is a trooper. Something that I should also mention, um, during the scene where Catwoman and Penguin are aligning, but also threatening animals in order to, like, sort of take each other's measure, Catwoman has to shove a bird in her mouth, and they accomplish this by having Michelle Pfeiffer put a live bird in her mouth. Which I feel like there, there's gotta be better ways to do that. It's a memorable scene, and it's interesting looking, but it traumatized a bird, and that bird somehow didn't, like, savage the inside of Michelle Pfeiffer's mouth. There's gotta be better ways to do that. Yeah, moving on, uh, Christopher Walken is Max Shrek. You also giggled when Christopher Walken appeared and started being Christopher Walken at you. (laughs) There's no, like, waiting period. There's no, like you know, take this character seriously for five minutes. It's just Christopher Walken being Christopher Walken with big, bushy eyebrows that come off the side of his face. Yeah, he's not quite as over-the-top as the other two villains because he's not playing, like, a classic bat villain of any sort, but he's still arching his eyebrows and mugging at the camera. Oh, the scene where he pushes her out of the window. Oh, yeah. I actually really love his comedic timing in that, where he's, like, acting like it was a fake-out, and he's like, ah, and and then shove. Yeah, yeah. That part was initially offered to David Bowie, who turned it down to be in Twin Peaks instead. Yeah. David Bowie was also approached by Tim Burton to play the Joker. I can see that working. Now, Burton was reticent to have Christopher Walken play Max Shrek because he found Christopher Walken to be creepy. I can see that. Later on, in a uh, career retrospective, somebody asked Christopher Walken how they got his hair that way. And he said, no, it's a wig. It's modeled after my hair, but it's a wig. Really? Yes, and he, he got to keep the wig, or he took the wig home. Aww. couple other people, uh, Michael Gow's Alfred. I mentioned this before. There is no Alfred that I dislike. Nope. This is a great Alfred. They're all great Alfreds. If Alfred isn't your favorite Batman character, you're doing Batman wrong. I like Alfred more than most people like Batman. Again, if Alfred isn't your favorite Batman character, you're doing Batman wrong. Uh, while every actor is really overqualified to be in this movie, how particularly, he's a seasoned stage vet, he's using in Hammer films that Tim Burton grew up while watching, which is probably why he's even here, and just all his little underhanded rejoinders against Batman, because Alfred's the only person who gets the sass Batman without consequence. The scene where they're trying, where Selena and, and Bruce are both trying to get Alfred to like relay a message so that they can leave to go to the tree lighting, and Alfred's just like, I'm drafting the message currently. I have the perfect thing to say. Get out of my face. <laughs> you come up with a dirty limerick, one has sprung to mind. <laughs> You're just like, okay. And then we have Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon. Pat Hingle is a very uh, experienced character actor. He's in a lot of westerns. You recognize him from a couple of things. Commissioner Gordon is a weirdly minor character in these four Batman movies, the two uh, Burton ones and the two Schumacher ones. Hingle is playing Gordon in all of them, but he never gets to do anything. Yeah. He doesn't even turn on the bat signal. Yeah, yeah, you don't even get a scene where he's turning on the bat signal in this one. At least in the first Batman movie, he's like, turn on the signal! Yeah. Um, Which is weird, because in the Nolan films, Gary Oldman does a lot. Well, that's because Commissioner Gordon does do a lot. But let's pause for a second and talk about the bat signal scene again, because... Oh, yeah, one thing that really bothered Sarah... So there... I didn't even have to get it out, 
as a sentence before you were like, oh, does this in fact bother you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it does. The, the way that you get to see Batman is they, they light the bat signal, but it's all around Bruce Wayne's mansion. Yep. So there's like four of them that like floodlight into his drawing room. And then he stands up and stands in frame with this massive bat signal light behind him. And it's like, how on earth? You were choking you, on your words. How on earth did you get the bat signal positioned around your mansion and nobody knows you're Batman? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're like, are you are you wondering why how, how Bruce Wayne built four bat signals around the uh, around Wayne Manor to shine into his house whenever the real bat signal is watching? Nobody nobody asks any questions. You're like, yes, yes, I'd like to know that. You're like, <laughs> well, too bad. Specifically, that I would like to know. Yeah, yeah. Don't think about that too much. This is the first of many of those. <sighs> uh, and the last thing I wanted to bring up is that in the prologue. Penguin's father, uh, Tucker Cobblepot, is played by Paul Rubens, better known as Pee Wee Herman, who, you know, gave Tim Burton his first big break in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. This role was offered to Burgess Meredith, but he was too sick to actually do it, so Paul Rubens was an emergency replacement. Alright, the reception for this film. It made $45.69 million on its opening weekend, which was a record at the time. It was beaten one year later by Jurassic Park. Ooh. This film had a budget of $65 million, which was $80 million after marketing. And it wound up making $282.8 million, which made it one of the biggest hits of 1992, but it didn't make nearly as much as its predecessor. It's difficult to overstate how massive that 1989 Batman film was. Batman, a character who has been consistently popular since 1939 and has never gone away, Throughout the entirety of my life, there have been multiple Batman projects in production simultaneously. Movies, cartoons, live-action television shows, video games, what have you. You could still plausibly argue that 1989 was Batman's biggest year. where Everybody was talking about him. That bad signal is freaking everywhere. And just about anything that came after that 1989 hit was probably not going to do as well, but this was a, a massive drop-off. Warner Brothers was disappointed by it. The reviews for this film were, how do you think the critics felt about this one? What was it you said Ebert said? Style over substance? Uh, yes, he was saying that about the previous film. Yeah, did you say something similar to this one? Uh, no, he said he didn't like this one. Oh, good. However... The critics were mostly positive towards this one. They praised the set design and the costumes for being very creative. They very they much are. They very much liked uh, Dan, uh, Danny Elfman's score. Yep. Uh, they didn't think the script was very good, but that the uh, performances were excellent. Fair. Most of the criticisms for this film were it being too dark, violent, and horny for children. Also fair. There was a huge backlash. Parents groups complained about the very deliberate S&M references, particularly in the Batman and Catwoman scenes. Lots of parents took their very young children to this because they thought, hey, it's a silly Batman movie. And they're like, why is this so horny? Yeah. McDonald's put out Happy Meal toys to promote the film and then pulled them after a couple of weeks. No kidding. You don't. I got a Happy Meal toy from Batman Returns. It was a little Batmobile where, like, the, the, the bullet part would, like, shot out from the rest of it. I remember that Batmobile toy! Yeah. That was from that was from a Happy Meal from this? Yes. Oh. Yeah, I got it because I, I was hospitalized for an infected cut and couldn't see it in theaters. I had to wait for video. 
I still have that somewhere. Yeah. I looked it up. It's not worth that much. We 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 kept a lot of our old toys, so I wasn't. I'm not at all surprised that you still have it. Amongst comics fans and practitioners, they were a lot harsher on this movie. Is this the one that Kevin Smith is referencing in his like stand-up DVD? Oh, he hates both Batman movies that the Tim Burton made. But in particular, he didn't like the idea that Penguin somehow got a hold of the detailed uh, schematics for the Batmobile and yeah, was able to hotwire it. Yeah, it it's a, compared to some of the other narrative issues, that is a very, very minor nitpick. How, how do they get control of the Batmobile? How do they hack into the Batmobile? The Batmobile is covered in security measures. How did they shut those down without getting shot by the Batmobile? Leather jacket. All right. <laughs> Most comic book people believe that the story was incoherent. You don't say. Matt Wagner, who uh, is best known for creating Grendel and Mage amongst comics fans, although he was doing a lot of Batman work at the time, he didn't like that the Burton films made Batman as psychologically unhinged and murderous as the villains. He didn't like a Batman who walked around casually murdering people. I mean, yeah. The Christopher Nolan ones have Batman just mutilating people up to the precipice of killing them and then pulling back because he's righteous, which also has issues. Yeah, well, and then if you look at the Arkham video games, our brother-in-law Pete and our sister Charlotte and I have this running joke that Alfred and Oracle have sort of like hacked into the bat suit and are just like letting him believe that he's not murdering people because it'll make him feel better. But, like, at one point, he, like, curb stops a guy. And then, like, his special, like, imaging in the bat suit is, like, unconscious. And it's like, it's okay, Batman, don't worry. They're just taking a nap. He's fine. So, yeah, that's a, that's a running theme. Batman Returns got uh, two Oscar nominations for makeup and special effects. It didn't win either. Warranted, though. Yeah, uh, when the American Film Institute put out its top 100 list of best cinematic villains, both Catwoman and Penguin were nominated, but neither of them made the list. Uh-huh. Warner Brothers, upset by the backlash uh, to Batman Returns and feeling that the film has gotten too dark and violent and uh, mature in terms of content, not necessarily perspective. It's still a very juvenile film while also being very, very, very horny. So horny. Yeah, it's one of just like uh, Mortal Kombat. It's one of those things where there's so much gore and upsetting elements that it's clearly not supposed to be for children, but it's also at the same time so juvenile that only kids could like it. It's a similar sphere. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Warner Brothers wanted uh, the next one to go in a much more family-friendly direction. Uh, when they brought on Joel Schumacher, at the point, Schumacher was mostly known for legal dramas and also incredibly dark comedy. Like, I think his lightest movie up to that point was The Lost Boys. And he initially wanted to do a riff on Batman Year One, kind of similar to what Christopher Nolan did with Batman Begins. But the Warner Brothers said that they wanted, like, a modern version of the Adam West show, and he happily went along with that. So while um, Tim Burton does have a producing credit on Batman Forever, it is a decidedly different film. They asked uh, Keaton if he wanted to come back. He read the script and said no. Wow. That's, that, that's the one with Val Kilmer, right? That's the one with Val Kilmer. There was a proposed Catwoman spinoff. Really? Tim Burton was attached to direct and Michelle Pfeiffer wanted to come back. However, 
the film wound up in development hell and both of them gradually drifted away. In 1995, Pfeiffer expressed interest, but she was having her first kid and doing other movies and figured it wasn't likely. Uh, it was stuck in development hell for years and was ultimately made in 2004 starring Halle Berry as Catwoman. <laughs> Forgot about that, huh? I like to forget about that movie. Now, Warner Brothers also looking for a way to promote the film Greenlit, uh, a cartoon that debuted in 1992. They lured um, two producers on Tiny Toons, Bruce Tim and Paul Denny, away. And uh, the resulting program, uh, Batman the Animated Series, pr uh, premiered just as the film was coming out. Tim Burton gave them storytelling suggestions and character sketches, which Tim and Denny promptly ignored. Neither of them were terribly fond of the Batman movies. Good! Although, I didn't realize that it was related to the movie. Yeah, yeah, it was meant to promote the movie. They did keep the Art Deco designs and the architecture. The Joker still has a civilian name of Jack Napier, although it's only referenced once. Shirley Walker, who did the arrangements for Danny Elfman in the first Batman movie, did the incidental music for most of Batman the Animated Series and supervised the crew. And Danny Elfman eventually came around and did the theme music for the, you know, opening crawl. And if you like Batman, you love this show. Yeah. I don't need to go into that. that no. that's, that's getting its own episode down the line. Oh, yes. Okay, with that, let's talk about some themes. Oh, boy. <laughs> You already talked about homicidal Batman. I think I said everything I needed to say about that one. Yep. The taking our masks off bit in the masquerade ball. We commented on that a little bit. The undertones of sexual repression and frustration, particularly in the scenes where Batman and Catwoman are wrestling. Oh my goodness. When they are, I, I'm not even going to call it making out because it's so aggressive. Like she stabs him in the side once and she like pins him down and, and she licks his face and you're like even though Michelle Pfeiffer is one of the sexiest women in that period ew yeah i don't like she licks she starts like at his chin and then she goes up to his top lip and then pulls away like it's not like she's looking like the side of his face or like she's like going in for like a kiss that's just all tongue like it's just she licks from his chin to the top of his lip and then walks away and Danny Elfman has a little screechy violin happen while that's going on. Yeah, because she's in her crazy moment. I also wanted to talk a bit about Tim Burton's strained efforts to give this film a feminist subtext. It doesn't really work. Oh my god. The, the idea of Catwoman is a marginalized, underestimated woman who comes out of her shell and reclaims her autonomy, but also is insane. And her sexuality... Burton wanted Selena to be a secretary because he believed that was the most ignored and pressed upon role that a person could possibly have, at least in the industry that he is in. Yeah, there's a whole lot of like pseudo second wave feminist sloganeering that Catwoman throws at you as one liners and stuff. And once again, Michelle Pfeiffer does what she can to sell it. Most of them are clunkers or they, they, almost all of them took you aback. Yeah, I think the the worst one, though, was at the end where uh, Alfred says, you know, like, Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. And, and, and Bruce responds with, you know, like, Merry Christmas, Alfred. And then he says, goodwill towards men. And then there's, like, a very pregnant, like, 30-second pause. And he goes, and women. Yeah. Like, <laughs> even Penguin is talking about sexual equality when he is lecturing his penguins about bombing the city. This yeah. is going to kill men yeah. and women. Yeah, because because their erogenous jo zones are all equal. And you're like, what? Because he's talking about kidnapping children. And then drowning them in the sewer. 
And you're like, what? He's like, never mind, I'm going to blow them up. And after a shove rockets up your genitals, it doesn't matter if, if it's a penis or a woo-woo. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Penguins' mayoral campaign, which is baldly cynical, even for the standards of its time. And we're talking, you know, post-Reagan, Iran-Contra, all of that. And we're in a sort of complacent Clinton malaise, or at least careening into one. And as I said earlier, uh, any evil businessman that appeared in a film between, like, say, 1985 and 1997 has at least a little bit of Trump in him. And that is definitely the case for Mag Shrek. And also, just in 2020, the idea of a political career being completely torpedoed by a guy being caught saying shitty things into a microphone. If only. Really, now. Uh, yeah, Max Shrek is a little Trumpy. Chip himself, just being a large adult son, he's also a little Trumpy. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And I would love to never talk about Donald Trump ever again. I am recording this after he has finally, finally lost the election for hopefully the last time. He still hasn't conceded, though. Oh, he's never going to do that. No. Like uh, even Mitch McConnell's thrown in the towel at this point. So. Thank God. Yeah, uh, yeah. No more talking about Trump. Fuck that guy. Fantastic. Fuck that guy forever. Yeah, I want to talk about again a little bit. Uh, Batman as a minor supporting character in his own <laughs> franchise. Batman is barely in this film. He is here to react to what the far more charismatic villains are doing. Yeah. He and disappears for minutes. He's not in like the first twenty minutes of the movie. I mean, he does bust up the circus guys. Yeah, and then he's gone. There are some exceptions of this, but it, it's still fairly prevalent. Batman Mask of the Phantasm, I think, is the first Batman movie that is about Batman. And I think it's one of the reasons why it is the best Batman movie. Oh, that movie is so good. Batman Begins is also about Batman. The Dark Knight tries to be, but, you know, Heath Ledger. And The Dark Knight Rises is still pretty Batman-centric. It is Batman-centric, but uh, Anne, Anne Hathaway sort of steals that show. Yeah, and Tom Hardy's Darth Connery impression is probably the most memorable aspect of the film, although maybe not for the reasons that its creative team wanted it to be. Indeed. Yeah, however, you know, Batman is still sort of jumbled up by having to wear this giant black condom suit that he can't move in, and we're here because of the villain. And the next thing I want to talk about is superhero sequels that improve on their predecessor, because I'm sure you remember the previous Batman movie even less than this one. However, I will say that I think Batman Returns is a better film, and that is not a unique opinion. Lots of people say that. We didn't watch either of the movies that surround this one very much. I don't even know if we even owned them, but I'm pretty sure we owned this one on VHS. Yeah, we had Batman um, Forever on VHS. I, I don't remember much about the other movies at all um the first one is the one with tommy lee jones right no batman forever is with tommy lee jones jack nicholson's in the first one. Oh, the first one's jack nicholson okay tommy lee jones is two-face got it okay got right. it see yeah i don't i don't remember these movies because i can just conflate them all in my head there's a tower in the one with jim carrey right yep yep uh, yeah, I, I think a reason that a lot of superhero sequels are better than the first one is just because the origin is out of the way. Yeah, is, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, you know, in Superman the movie, you spend like the first 20 minutes on Krypton, and then you have to spend another 15 minutes in Smallville, and then after a long while, you get to be in Metropolis where Superman is doing Superman stuff. And that also happens in Spider-Man. The, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man is a very long first act because not only... 
does Uncle Ben have to get whacked, but then the Green Goblin has to get set up, and yeah, this it's a very long first act, and you know, the X-Men movie, you have to be introduced to each individual X-Men, who has to demonstrate their powers, and you have to explain what mutants are to everybody, and in the sequels to all of those, that crap's out of the way, you can just sort of get into it. Yeah, that brings it to another point. You know, because we really don't need to watch the Waynes die again. Anybody who is alive on planet Earth right now probably has some notion of who Batman is and why he's Batman. Mm. So every time, like, Zack Snyder or somebody else has those pearls explode again, you're just like, why? Why are you taking up screen time with this? Why can't Batman just show up and be Batman? You know, to make a, a more ponderous comparison... When you're reading the plays of Sophocles, he doesn't feel the need to recap the entirety of the Trojan War every single time. He just assumes you know what the Trojan War is and how Ajax is connected to it. And you can do that with Batman in the here and now, I think. Yes, for sure. Next thing I want to bring up is the idea of superhero films as an auteur thing. Because Batman Returns couldn't have been made by anybody except Tim Burton. I do believe that auteur theory has its limitations. I've talked about that on Alfred Hitchcock uh, episodes and other ones. However, Tim Burton has more of a hand in this than most superhero directors have in their films. The Marvel movies in particular are more of a brand than any kind of individual artistic property. They're a bit homogenous. The directors often feel very anonymous, with the rare exception of Thor, Ragnarok, and the Guardians of the Galaxy films. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a paint-by-numbers thing. They bring in lots of uh, independent directors without much experience and have the second uh, unit do most of it, so it's kind of an assembly line thing. The Warner films, even to the present day, give the directors and other creative personnel a little more leeway to put their own personality onto the characters. And they have fallen flat on their face a number of times, especially recently. Mm. Uh, having Zack Snyder turn Superman into an objectivist Ayn Rand parable is not something that I can get on board with. At the same time, I do feel that Although the Marvel movies are always competent at their worst, I think most of them are a solid B+. There is something to say about bringing in creative people and allowing them to be creative. Nostalgia is a factor here, but I still like Batman Returns, despite its many problems. It's a fun movie. I wouldn't say it's a good movie. It's not quality, but it's also not really trying to be. It's very campy and over-the-top and... It had, I mean, it has a certain Adam West feel, and it's enjoying it. When people trash the Schumacher films, most of the complaints made about it is, you know, clunky dialogue, lack of focus on Batman, stitched together subplots that don't cohere together, uh, lumpy editing. All of those problems are also very prevalent in the Burton films. The only real shift is an aesthetic one. The Burton films are very baby goth. Yes. Whereas the Schumacher films have a very campy, theatrical, ironic, disco gay subculture thing to them, which uh, threatened the masculinity of comic book fans, which I think is a big part of the backlash against them. I kind of imagine now as an adult that I would maybe enjoy that movie more. Like a part of me just like my reaction to that movie, because that one came out, what? When I was like eight, seven or eight. Yeah, thereabouts. I think like I think Batman Forever was ninety five or ninety six, and then Batman Forever was ninety eight. Or Batman. I mean, yeah, Batman, Batman and Robin, Robin was, was ninety eight. Yeah, so I was like seven years old, and 
I remember you and Sylvan going to see it in theaters and, and Cheryl and I had to stay home and we were so angry that we couldn't go see it in theaters with you. We wanted to go see it so bad because we were all obsessed with Batman. We watched the animated series like on repeat and you and Sylvan got home and you were just like, nope, one more thing. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yep. And then we watched it at, at home on VHS when, when it was available. And Charles and I were just kind of like, yeah, no, you were right. But worth it. But I imagine now where I have that appreciation for the, you know, like gay subculture and camp, maybe I'd enjoy it. Well, we, we can revisit those later. Although, d- does the nipple Batman suit bother you any less? Uh, there, are, there are definitely worse things in the world. I think people made a much bigger deal out of that. I think I made a much bigger deal out of that than I probably should have. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if I was seven, you were 11, so... The final thing I wanted to bring up before we wind down, sort of related to what I brought up, is Batman's malleability as a character. Now, whenever I hear comic book geeks talk about the wrong... the This version of Batman is not the true Batman, I... I think that's ridiculous because Batman's been around for over 80 years and even by the standards of other characters who have been around for a similar vintage and have had continuous stories coming out during that period, you know, Superman, Archie, Mickey Mouse, so on and so forth, there are so many different versions of Batman. They're all very different from each other and I don't think it's possible for there to be a wrong one at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like there are definite versions of Batman that I think focus more on the, like, murdery, revenge-type stuff. I tend to like a Batman that's more, like, balanced and sort of in the middle, like, the animated series version. Yeah, like Um, most millennials, I consider the animated series to be the definitive one. Exactly. But I wouldn't discount versions. I mean, while there are versions of Batman that I like than the other ones, I am hesitant to call any of them, like, objectively wrong. Yeah. On that note, I believe we should wind things off. We can just not shut up about Batman for another hour or two. No problem. It's like the X-Men episode. You probably shouldn't have asked one of your siblings to be your co-host on this one. Oh, well, so that was Batman Returns. Thanks for listening, if you made it this far. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Good night, everybody.